Hello and welcome to the Alliance Audio podcast here on alliancemagazine.org. I'm Charles Keaton, editor of Alliance, the magazine and website with news, views and analysis of philanthropy worldwide. Our last podcast debated what makes an effective foundation. Those of you who tuned in to alliancemagazine.org or followed the debate on the hashtag More Than Grants will have heard Paul Streets of corporate funder the Lloyds Bank Foundation and Dan Corey of think tank New Philanthropy Capital offering some strong views on philanthropy. They called on foundations to give more core funding to grantees, collaborate better with fellow funders, be bolder in their advocacy, and most of all, be much more transparent. Streets went further, arguing that the majority of foundations simply aren't transparent enough. He said, and I quote, you look at a lot of foundations and you wouldn't even know who they fund, where they fund, or what they fund, and that's not transparent. And if you're not transparent, then you open yourself up to accusations of being secretive and therefore not trusted. As you can imagine, these comments provoke quite a reaction. Some saw them as a much-needed wake-up call, while others rejected this characterization outright and noted that self-inflicted attacks are bad form when the wider charitable sector is already under scrutiny over its conduct and practices. So, today, should foundations do more to be and be seen to be transparent, trusted and effective? And in short, should philanthropy be doing better? To discuss and answer these questions, I hope I'm delighted to be joined by two prominent figures in the UK foundation sector, Paul Ramsbottom and Carol Mack. Carol is the CEO of the Association of Charitable Foundations, which represents the interests of British foundations. Hello, Carol. Good morning. And Paul is the CEO of the Wolfson Foundation, one of the largest country's largest foundations with annual grants edging £30 million. So hello, Paul. Hello, Charles. And if I can start with you, Paul, um, do you, in your view, think that foundations need to be more transparent? Well, I've got a lot of sympathy um, for the view that foundations should be as transparent as they possibly can. But before tackling the question head on, I think it is worth noting that actually foundations are the most transparent form of philanthropy. And as a starting point, we need to contrast them uh, with private giving and also giving through things like donor advised funds, both of which are potentially completely anonymous, completely secretive ways of giving. Embedded within setting up a foundation is a sense of transparency. You have to report in exactly the same way as every other charity, at least in the UK. Um, And so therefore, I think we do have to be slightly careful, because I think one danger is that we simply discourage individuals and families and corporates from setting up foundations. Uh, So would you say that Paul Streets and um, uh, Dan Corey maybe have slightly off the mark what they are saying about the lack of transparency applies more to charitable giving in general rather than foundations in particular? I think it's harsh to pick out foundations specifically because, as I say, they are the most transparent end. Um, And I think much better to think about the large sums of funds being given with all the same tax breaks as individuals or through donor-advised funds. Having said that, and now kind of retreating into my position as chief executive of, of, of one of the larger foundations, I think it is fair to say that to do our jobs well as large foundations and to be as effective as possible, it absolutely makes sense to be open and transparent, to talk about what we're doing, why we're doing it, what our theory of change might be, who we're working with, um, how we're spending our funds um, tying into really great sector-wide initiatives like 360 Giving. And I think all of that actually helps to make an effective foundation. But I'd much rather it was carrot rather than stick. In other words, 
uh, foundations are encouraged to do that because it's best practice and because it's a way to be an effective foundation, not because there, sh- there should be kind of greater legal emphasis on that, because the danger of that is we stop people setting up foundations. And I think that is a real problem, particularly in the UK, as contrasted with a lot of other countries. There are very, very few foundations now being set up. Well, um, perhaps we'll come on onto that. Um, but if I can turn to you, Carol, um, what's true of the foundation that Paul works for would presumably be true of all foundations, that all of them should be transparent, but maybe not all of them are. Um, do you think there's a difference between larger foundations that maybe have uh, more scrutiny, more professionalism, and those um, uh, smaller foundations, a larger number of smaller foundations that maybe just don't, don't have that um, kind of level of... Uh, of engagement with transparency? I think it's a false distinction to draw the distinction between large and small foundation. But I would certainly agree that um, the foundation sector is very diverse. There are 12,000 foundations in the UK. Um, and um, the number of large foundations like Wolfson Foundation, Lloyds Bank Foundation is very, very small. Um, We've just heard um, Paul give a very powerful explanation as to why it helps his foundation achieve its mission if it is transparent. And I would completely agree with and support that. I think it's fantastic that there are foundations out there making the arguments, as indeed um, Paul was um, last, last, at the last podcast with Dan. But do you think they could go further? Do you think foundations um, should be compelled to go further or should it be left up to them about how much information they disclose about what they do and why they do it? I think it's important to be clear about what foundations already do um, disclose. So foundations are no more or less transparent than other charities in the UK. They're listed on a public register. The names of their trustees are on that register. Anyone can search that. Anyone can see what other charities those trustees are also directors of. They have to prayer accounts every year. They have to have a balance sheet with their assets. They have to do a trustees annual report in which they explain how they've spent their money, the grants that they've given, how they've invested their assets. All of that is submitted to the regulator in all three jurisdictions of the UK, Scotland, Northern Ireland and England and Wales, and all of it's publicly available. They also, like all other charities, this is all charities in the UK, also have to answer an annual questionnaire and there will be follow-up questions from the Commission on that, questioning foundations about their spend rate, things like whether or not they have a safeguarding policy. So foundations are already very transparent and I completely agree that foundations are the most transparent and effective vehicle for transforming private wealth into public giving. And I think there is a very real danger of driving philanthropy into more secretive um, routes. I was talking to a wealthy philanthropist um, earlier in the year who told me that his friends, his um, wealthy friends, are bombarded with marketing material about setting up donor advice funds. And they say to him, I can't be bothered to set up a foundation. It is too much trouble. And I don't believe that's Mm. the case. I think the benefits that come from foundation status are really significant and important. Um, They're very transparent, as we've said. Now, is the world perfect? Could foundations do more? Of course they could. Um, But it's just important to be clear about what part of the sector we're talking about. So perhaps we can talk about a little bit about what foundations uh, are doing to do more. And I know that the ACF um, has uh, set up uh, an initiative to promote stronger foundations. Perhaps either you or Paul, who might well be involved in the initiative, might want to say a bit bit more about that. Yeah, shall I say a bit about that? I mean, um, in 2016, ACF um, did a survey of our members and 98% of our members told us that they wanted us to host more challenging conversations about foundations 
foundation practice. So to say that foundations in the UK aren't interested in challenge and aren't interested in improving their practice just doesn't isn't borne out by the facts. So um, the Stronger Foundations Initiative we launched in December, and it's our our goal is to have a conversation about what excellent, what leading foundation practice looks like across a whole range of areas. Um, and there are six themes to that. We pull them out um, from some of the literature about what makes for a good foundation. I can list all six themes if you want, uh, perhaps not at this point in the uh, podcast, but one of them is transparency and engagement. Um, and perhaps and I can pick up on a couple more and then turn to Paul about that. I presume one of them will be about diversity. And absolutely. Questions have been raised about you know the extent to which the philanthropic sector i mean as part of the charitable sector is diverse enough both in terms of gender but also in terms of class and uh, race and some people have characterized foundations as being at least foundation boards as being predominantly white and wealthy and i just wonder paul from your point of view i'm working with a number of foundations including your own what you'd say about that in terms of the extent to which foundations reflect the societies of which they're a part well, I mean, one of the reasons I really welcome the ACF initiative is because it puts these type of questions front and centre and we can have a sector-wide debate, which perhaps has only ever happened on the fringes before. Um, and certainly in terms of diversity, uh, the sector has got a very long way to go. Um, I think it's probably true of a lot of major charities in the UK, but I would say that foundations are probably behind the curve on that. Is there enough transparency about the extent of diversity, in particular around the diversity of foundation boards? I mean, is there research about that? Is there somewhere, a place someone can go to look at whether foundations are indeed behind or ahead of the curve? Well, I think more needs to be done. And I think the honest answer is that there's been relatively little uh, research in this area. To be fair, um, there are particular factors that sometimes make diversity more difficult within uh, a foundation context. For example, I think it's perfectly reasonable uh, that an organisation that was set up by a family would want to keep that family heavily involved in the governance. I think of an organisation like the Garfield Western Foundation, where all board members have to be direct lineal descendants of the founder, uh, which, you know, has a certain rationale to it, probably cuts rather against the diversity agenda, or indeed a corporate foundation where, I mean, say Leverhulme, for example, all members of the board are appointed by Unilever. Um, so what's your view, uh, sitting in the kind of context of the Wolfson Foundation, about what would be the ideal mix of uh, people across your organisation? Well, I, so I think the ideal is to have genuine diversity of background and opinion uh, because, A, I think that's the, the, the governance structure that leads to best decision making. If you have people who look the same, talk the same, think the same, actually uh, you're impoverished as an organisation. But also I think if we're there to serve society and to serve sectors of society, we ought to in some way be reflective of those parts of society. And so therefore I guess diversity will partly depend on the sectors uh, which particular foundation is serving so um, you know an organization that is working internationally for example on international development issues might look rather different in its governance to an organization like Wolfson that's um, serving higher education particularly diversity in both cases but actually rather different types of diversity but I think it's so important that we're having the debate and discussion and so important actually that that organizations like Alliance are putting this front and centre, as well as 
the Stronger Foundations initiative. Well, we're certainly trying to, and it's good to be able to have uh, guests like you in the studio to discuss these issues. Um, I want to pick up on a couple of other um, points that might be raised in an initiative like yours to promote the Stronger Foundations, and that is about the use of foundation investments. Uh, So that part of the foundation which is not making grants but is investing resources to enable grants to be made in the future. And I just wanted maybe to start with uh, you, Carol, about your views about the extent to which investment should be aligned with the missions of the foundations or consistent with them, as opposed to simply be about maximising the financial returns. Do you have a view on uh, foundation investments? Yeah, I think the key word here is intentionality. And you'll be aware that ACF um, published um, a report, Intentional Investing, a couple of years ago, that I think um, lays out the ground very well. I wouldn't have a view um, because on on what's best for a particular foundation, because really the trustees are the experts in their mission and in their charitable objectives, and they are the right people um, to to think about the extent to which their investments can support their mission. Um, I think too often the debate is focused on exclusion um, or inclusion in terms of what you have in your investment portfolio. And actually, there are very good examples of ways in which foundations have used the investments they have as an asset to engage with the companies whose shares they hold and, and get changes in practice. I mean, the living wage campaign would be a good example of that. So I, I think I think it's all about intentionality. And do you envisage then, um, and Paul, if we can turn to you, envisage foundations doing more of this, maybe as a using investments as a form of campaigning and be good to talk more about foundations and their involvement in campaigning as well? Yes. So, well, I'll come on to campaigning in a moment, but just to... To, to kind of finish off on investments, I'm sure that you're right, um, Charles, that there is a trend. Um, and it's a trend partly uh, driven by, uh, I think, more professionalised teams and more thoughtful trustee boards uh, in terms of really thinking hard about how investments sit alongside the charitable objectives. But actually, if we're honest as well, it's, it's partly about scrutiny of the sector. And I think there will be more and more scrutiny over the next few years uh, in terms of particularly the largest endowed foundations as to where they're investing, why they're investing there, and how uh, potentially uh, the two do or don't chime, the charitable objectives and the investment objectives. How does it work in the case of your foundation or the foundation you work for? Yeah, so we have a a clear um, ethical investment policy um, with a small number of exclusions as well as thinking more proactively Um, it's embedded in all of our decision making Um, a lot of our considerations are based around our research agenda so for example you know we do a lot of biomedical funding so tobacco for example uh, is, is, is a formal area of exclusion for us it would look rather odd if we were putting a lot of money into cancer research on the one hand and investing in um in in directly in tobacco companies on the other. Um, but I think you're right in in um, tying it to campaigning, and I think there has been some quite interesting work done by some foundations. Um, and I think one of the interesting points to come out of the, the, the last podcast was the extent to which campaigning, working with government, talking to government, um, talking to a wider audience, potentially in, including investors, is one of the arrows in the quiver of foundations. A well-run foundation will go well beyond simply transferring funding from our bank account to another bank account. And I think campaigning is very much part of that. I think it raises some 
quite profound and challenging questions. Um, the obvious pushback um, for an organisation like Wolfson might be, what gives you the authority to speak out on a subject? Who are you speaking for? And is your only authority to do that the fact that you've got an endowment of 900 million? Well, the point that Dan Corey, if I may, said in response to that was simply, well, by the fact of making grants, you're influencing the debate, you're shaping the arena in which kind of uh, society takes place. So in a sense, campaigning is uh, just an extension of that. Well, and I agree with Dan to some extent, although one is implicit and the other is explicit. Um, and I think there is a difference between making a choice between funding organisation A and organisation B and actually putting a direct message out uh, to government and attempting to influence government policy. And it's the kind of intentionality and the proactive side of doing that. If I can just speak from a Wolfson perspective, although we tread cautiously, we absolutely agree with the fact that as a serious, thoughtful funder, you have to think about system change rather than individual projects or even individual sectors. Um, but we like to think that our authority comes through careful research and evidence. And therefore, we happen to have a bit of a platform because we are an organisation working at reasonable scale. But our authority doesn't come from that. It comes, A, from our discussions with our partners, including the organisations that we're funding, but B, and crucially, the commissioning of research. And it's on the back of that, then, that we feel that we've got an opportunity to speak. And actually, it's not necessarily um, simply a lobbying of government. Sometimes, actually, it's working directly in partnership with government, putting in joint funding programmes, um, as well as, on occasion, actually making perhaps a, a slightly sharper uh, a point. And um, Carol, if I may turn to you, um, do you see that from your experience at sitting at the Association of Charitable Foundations, more foundations doing what Paul is describing, is really trying to build their evidence base and their research, and indeed in some cases their partnerships with government and, and to influence public policy? Yeah, it's really interesting. At our uh, annual conference last November, we did a straw poll um, and we asked um, how many in the audience um, were going to be increasing the amount of advocacy that they did. And there was quite a large number of people in the hall um, who said that, yes, advocacy was something they were going to explore. I think there's no doubt that taking a long-term view, doing the research, assembling the arguments is something that the foundation model is really well set up to do. Um, you can be agile and take additional action when the time is right. And you can also just hang in there when the environment is not conducive and keep plugging away at an issue, funding the research so that when the time changes, you've got all the evidence lined up to create a change. I mean, the foundations that funded some of the work around the Freedom of Information Act are a very good example of that. And, you know, there are loads of examples of foundations um, supporting and in some cases leading successful campaigns. I wouldn't like to run away with the idea, though, that because foundations can do that well, that's all foundations should be doing. I think it's important to remember that in the UK, the average foundation, the median foundation, is one part part-time member of staff, a volunteer trustee board, giving away about £500,000 a year. So that's the constraints. Um, and if I just may um, just pick up on, on that, um, the, uh, another kind of area where foundations are associated with um, doing or have the ability to do, do, um, do more is around core funding. Yes. And um, one of the points that was made in the provocation paper that we debated in the last podcast was about whether foundations are giving enough 
core funding to grantees, something that foundations have the potential to do, maybe more than other kind of uh, organisations in the kind of voluntary space. Um, I just wonder what your your thoughts are on that point. I certainly hear a lot of foundations talking about and recognising the importance of funding core costs. I think there are two ways of doing that, and the two are often confused and spoken about in the same conversation. So on the one hand, there's full cost recovery. The principle, if you're funding a particular activity that a charity does, that you should also pick up the tab for the share of the core costs that relate to that. So you should pay a contribution towards the rent, the chief executive salary, so on and so forth. Now, that argument in the foundation sector is, I think, pretty well run, pretty well won. I don't know foundations who say, oh, we're going to fund um, a particular project, but we're not going to fund the full cost of that unless they're funding in a context where the business model is such that the core costs are paid by someone else. And that, that tells you something as well about funding core costs. If you're funding purely core costs and not a project, well, that means that somebody else is getting away with not doing full cost recovery. And I think that has been a, a constraint for foundations in the past and is a historical reason why foundations weren't so um, willing to fund core costs because there was a feeling that they were letting somebody else off the hook. Now, the funding environment today is clearly much more challenging. There have been public sector spending cuts. We're in an austere environment. So the, the context is different. And I think that is causing foundations to re-examine whether or not core costs are now the thing to fund in. But it does pose questions of sustainability and when a foundation moves on I mean Paul funds for six years and in that time you can work with your grantee to come up with a more sustainable business model but for some activities of charity as we know there is no such thing as a sustainable business model and what happens then when the grant comes to an end. So what does happen then Paul how do you manage this dilemma of wanting to produce provide core costs to support your partners but also being conscious that that might not be able to go on forever. And I'm I'm very sympathetic to this wearing another hat chairing a small uh, charity Um, and actually I think it's terrific that more uh, grant makers are now engaging in funding core costs I think it's worth saying that the traditional model was that you get your core costs from a business model that doesn't include grant-making organisations, perhaps involving government, and then grant-makers are the icing on the cake. In some parts of the charitable sector in the UK, that model is dead and buried. And some I, it was never the case. And some it was never the case. Mm. So I think um, Paul and Dan are on to something there. I, I think we have to put it in a wider context, though. I mean, Wolfson is predominantly funding higher education uh, as well as uh, education at at kind of earlier stages. And actually, the model there does more or less work. Um, You know, universities are not looking for core costs. Um, They are looking for research infrastructure, for example, which is something Mm. that Wilson's very much involved in. Um, So it will partly depend on the foundation and uh, the destination of the funding Indeed. And I also do think there is a role for specialist foundations. So... Um, our work, for example, at Wolfson within the wider charitable sector is about capital infrastructure. That's where our knowledge base is. Um, we're told by um, organisations that we work with that they find that very valuable, working with a knowledgeable funder who can help them shape that. Often it's about their business case going forward. Mm. Um, and if everybody moved into core costs, 
potentially you would lose that sense of some funders being specialists in a particular area. So I do agree with the general thrust of what's being said. I do think, though, perhaps it needs to be nuanced somewhat. Yeah, and I, I think part of the nuance that needs to be applied as well is thinking about the broad range of issues that foundations fund. I mean, ACF, we have 350 members. We have uh, foundations that fund in places as diverse as Syria and the Isle of Wight, on issues as varied as sequencing the human genome and repairing a scout hut, and motivated by passions as diverse as a concern for social justice and a love of choral music. So the core costs issue plays to some of those funding areas, but not to all of them. And I think it's just important to be clear about what part of the sector we're talking about. And for small and medium-sized charities in the UK at the current moment, core costs are really important. Uh, foundations know that and foundations that fund in that area are thinking seriously about how they can respond to that. And given the um, wide range of uh, causes that um, your members support and you support, um, um, I can see why the debate about core costs is so topical and current, but also why there may not be one size fits all in terms of the answer. But uh, we're we're running out of time. Just uh, one uh, broader question to just bring us back to uh, what's happening in the wider world and society around issues of trust in charitable institutions, including philanthropic institutions, something that has been, you know, on the agenda and, you know, you've referred to it in terms of, you know, the way that foundations serve society and their responsibilities to them. And it was put to me by a colleague of yours at the um, uh, umbrella body, the Philanthropy Australia, um, that um, one way of actually cementing trust between foundations and the wider society is a payout, is actually having a payout where a fixed amount of a foundation's assets are are delivered um, um, to society. But the key for this person um, and for them was that the payout shouldn't be so high that it was a disincentive to set up foundations, should, but should be high enough to actually show foundations making a connection to society. And what struck me as uh, remarkable about that, that it wasn't coming from outside the foundation sector, it was actually from an umbrella body representing foundations that were advocating for it. And in our first podcast at Alliance, we had a kind of lively debate about this topic and just wanted as a maybe as a rejoinder, as a closing kind of thoughts, whether you think actually there might be something about revisiting that argument around payouts, but not as an all or nothing, but actually thinking about its level as a potential policy measure that could increase trust uh, between foundations and wider society, whether you've got any closing reactions. Paul, if I can turn to you. Well, I think this issue of trust is very, very important. Um, uh, society generally uh, is putting organisations that have been valued and trusted for many, many years under the spotlight as never before. Foundations, I think, partly have got away with all this because they have a relatively low profile. My short answer is that mandatory payout is not the answer. At any level. At any level. I think the answer is being very robust, open and transparent, particularly as the larger foundations, about what we're doing and why we're doing it and not retreating retreating to a crude measure, whether that's 3%, 5%, 7%, as if that somehow is a way of um, galvanising trust. I think, in reality, it's the answer to a problem that doesn't exist. There's no evidence that Mm. foundations are sitting on funds that could be deployed elsewhere. And uh, as you were saying earlier, Carol, from your point of view, foundations have the capacity and are more trusted um, and more transparent than, than other institutions in the sector. So um, would that that be your view? Um, oh, no, I wouldn't have um, any evidence that they're any more or, or less trusted. Um, like, Paul, I'm struggling with the um, 
with the idea that payout would build trust. I mean, I think what's important about trust is that it takes an age to build and a second to destroy. Um, and all charities in the UK at the moment need to do more to build trust. Um, I think it, I think often what makes people trust an institution is they know what they can expect from you and they know that you will do it. So to me, trust is more about communication than about artificial mem- measures like a particular payout. I don't know what the regulatory uh, framework is like in Australia, but in the UK, you're not allowed to hoard assets. If you are not spending at a rate the Charity Commission um, thinks you should be spending at, you'll get a letter about it. And if you don't respond to the letter, you'll get some regulatory action. So I don't think it's a problem we have in the UK. And actually, I have um, spoken to many um, foundation executives who say, look, our stance is that if we see a brilliant project, we want to be able to back that over and above our usual annual spend. But we wouldn't do that if we didn't know we could recoup at a future date. So I think actually um, having not having a, a formal percentage spend results in better spending because your focus is on what is a good thing to spend the money on rather than trying to ship it out of the door in an artificial accounting framework. Well, that's a very clear uh, point um, and to end on. And um, at that point, I'd like to thank you, um, Carol Mack, um, from the UK's Association of Charitable Foundations and Paul Ramsbottom from the Wolfson Foundation. It's been a pleasure to have you both. Uh, thank you for your um, eloquent uh, observations. Um, for more essential um, viewing, reading and indeed listening for the philanthropy sector, please subscribe to alliancemagazine.org. We'll be back soon discussing fake news and what philanthropy should be doing about it, recording live from the European Foundation Centre Conference in Brussels. Until then, thank you and goodbye.